So if you remember last week, we spent a lot of time, uh, really the whole sermon actually, talking about what it looks like to uh, live in quarantine with the people around you and how should you interact with them and, and stuff like that, right? And, and the crux of that being that uh, if it's possible with you, uh, so, not if it's possible, uh, so much as it is up to you. Live at peace with the people around you, and we, we, uh, we talked about uh, that. And every sermon from here on out is not going to have to do with, the, uh, with quarantine and stuff like that. But if you remember last week, I was inspired to talk about that one by a, a poll on Twitter that one of the sports accounts I follow. And this week's was also inspired, not by that, but by social media in general, uh, I am on social media. I do like Facebook. I like Twitter. I like Instagram. Uh, my Instagram, I love it. It's full of pictures of castles and cats and landscapes. And I love it. It's great. My, my Twitter feed is full of sports stuff. And my Facebook feed is full of all of your posts, uh, which some of which I, I laugh at and stuff like that. So, uh, But because of that, I do also see what's going on in the world around me. And I've seen over these past six or seven weeks, we're somewhere in that mark for where this, uh, this quarantine thing began, um, a, a lot of hope and trust has been put in various people, whether they be politicians, whether they be scientists, whether they be celebrities, whether they be doctors, nurses, uh, the guy next door that seems to think that they have everything, this whole coronavirus thing figured out, and it's actually the aliens coming to attack us. Who knows? I don't know. I've seen a lot of stuff on, on Facebook recently. But, you know... The one thing that's been missing from a lot of people is the person we should be putting our hope in. Now, I want to say this off the top. I have no problems with doctors. I have no problems with nurses, of which my dad is one. And there have been many, 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 many times when I have called or texted or gone up there and been like, hey, I did X, Y, and Z. X, Y, and Z now hurts. What should I do? And most of the time, his response is, well, don't do that again. Thanks for the help. So, and I don't have problem with scientists and science and facts. In fact, you know me, I love facts. I love knowing things, and I love studying things and finding out new information. But if I put my trust, as much as I do trust my dad, if I put my ultimate trust in him, I'm going to be let down. If I put my ultimate trust in scientists, I'm going to be let down. If I put my trust in celebrities, I have bigger issues than that I'm going to be let down. Please do not trust our celebrities on anything. They're great people when it comes to entertaining us. That's it, though, okay? But you should be putting your hope and your trust and your faith in God. And then, no, this is not a salvation message, although that's part of putting your hope in God. But I wanted to talk about that because we're putting our hope in so many different places, and it's leaving us entirely hopeless. And we don't need any of that in today's world. You know, we talked last week a little bit about quarantine living, and one of the things we didn't necessarily mention was that this whole quarantine thing has taken its toll on people's psyches, on people's people that already dealt with depression, people that already dealt with these massive issues. It's taking its toll on them more so than the people who are in, quote, good mental health and stuff like that, and they're already hopeless, and now they seem even more so. And maybe you're in that situation, or maybe you know people are in that situation, or maybe you're one of those people that's hanging on the precipice, and for the first couple of weeks you were going, well, I'll trust God. And then the paycheck stopped. And then the kids got really annoying. And then your husband or wife got really annoying, or your roommate, and now we're six, seven weeks in, and you're going, when is this going to end? 
I want to trust God, but I thought this was only going to be a couple week thing. So what we're going to talk about today, and we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 6, verses uh, 13 through 20. Hebrews chapter 6 is, is looking back a little bit at why we should put our hope in God for the future. This passage of scripture looks at it and says, listen, this is what God did. Therefore, look at what he's going to do in the future. Now, this is not a prophetic message. I'm not here to tell you that in two weeks, coronavirus will be done. I, I have no idea. I'd like to tell you you can trust the CDC, but they've been wrong every single time. They're like, well, it'll only be a little bit. We're six weeks in. Well, you know, this. now they're saying the doctor just came out yesterday and said they treated somebody who was healed from coronavirus in early February, which means they had it at the latest mid-January. So this has been around way longer than we thought. So, so I'd like to tell you you can trust certain things, but I'm going to tell you you can trust God. And this is where we read that and this is where we show it. Now here's the thing with Hebrews. I want to talk a little bit about it before we hop into the actual scripture. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. Some people believe it's Paul. It's a good enough guess. It doesn't really have Paul's feel. When you read his other epistles and stuff like that, Paul has a very specific writing style and words that he uses and stuff like that, and that's not really present in Hebrews. Now, is it possible that he wrote it and it's just different than his other ones? Of course it is. I personally don't believe it was Paul. I don't know who it was, though. Maybe we'll find out when we get to heaven. Maybe we don't. We do know that it's in the canon of Scripture, so God wanted it there so it can be trusted, whoever wrote it. Male, female, Hebrew, Gentile, we don't know. But uh, So there's that. And the other thing, and you've heard me say this many, many times, in order to understand the New Testament, of which Hebrews is one of the books in the New Testament, you have to have a basic understanding of the old. You don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to be like, well, yes, I understand all of the calendars and the feasts and all this. But you have to have a basic understanding of the events and the purposes and such of the Old Testament in order to understand the new, because they are part of one Bible uh, for us as, as Gentiles and as uh, Christians here in the, uh, the church age. And Hebrews is one of those books where it would help if you had more than a basic knowledge because Hebrews really focuses on a lot of Old Testament things to talk about faith and to talk about Christ. And that's what's going to happen here in this passage of Scripture, which we'll break down a little bit as we get into it. So, without further ado, Hebrews chapter 6, and we're going to be reading verses 13 through 20. It reads, for when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will, serve, I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is possible, impossible, excuse me, I'm going to restart verse 18 because that word that I messed up is very important here. Verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we, have t we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. 
So before we we dive into this passage again, I want to jump to the end of it, that last verse there, and talk a little bit about Melchizedek, who he was. If you notice, right, this starts with Abraham, and it ends with Melchizedek, two very important people in the Old Testament. Now, Abraham, of course, has multiple, multiple chapters and such written about him in Genesis. Melchizedek is found in Genesis 14, 17 through 20, and then again in Psalm 110, verse 4, and then multiple places throughout Hebrews especially. But in the Old Testament, when he lived, he has three short verses in Genesis, and then chapter, and then one verse in Psalms. Yet he's mentioned quite a bit, and Christ is not compared to him, but said, listen, he's in the order of the priest of Melchizedek. So who was he? We don't know much about him. We know that Abraham meets him as he's returning from war, not Melchizedek, Abraham, returning from war, and he meets Melchizedek, who is a king priest, much like Jesus is a king priest. Abraham, uh, throughout those short verses, we see that Abraham actually gives Melchizedek a tenth of everything that he has. That's where a tenth comes from for tithing, which we're not going to get into tithing today. But in in the other, uh, in the uh, later uh, chapters, books, we're having trouble today, apparently. In the later books of the Old Testament where it lays out tithing and such, that's where that, that's the reason that the 10% is given. Because that's what Abraham gave. So that's where that comes from. So he's this priest king just as Christ is going to be. And why does Christ belong to the order of priests of Melchizedek? Here's why. The priests of, the, uh, of, of Judaism, of the Jews, have to come from the tribe of Levi. That's laid out in the law. If you are not of the tribe of Levi, you are not a priest. Did Jesus come from the tribe of Levi? No, he did not. He came from the tribe of Judah. So he can't be a priest. Or can he? Because he's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. A king priest. Somebody different than the priest of Levi. You're right. If the, and this is one of the big issues that they had is that he wasn't of Judah. Or he wasn't of, of Levi. He couldn't be a priest. But he was something more than that. There are multiple things in scripture uh, in the Old Testament called Christophanies. Now Melchizedek is not considered a Christophany. Christophany means it's somebody that was a precursor to Christ. Christ on earth before the person of Jesus. Melchizedek is not considered one of them. But he is, uh, call it an allegory if you'd like to, a metaphor, whatever. He, is, he shows us who Jesus was going to be. A king priest. And the people, now Hebrews was written to Jews. There are books in the, Old Test, in the New Testament excuse me, that were written to Gentiles and books written to Jews. Hebrews was written, from what we can tell, to Jews. Jews. So he's talking, or she, whoever the author is, is talking about Abraham and then Melchizedek, and these people would have understood who this is, which is why it's important for us to understand. So, let's dive into it now here. Number one, look to the past. Look to the past. I love verse 13. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself or on himself, right? And then it goes on to talk about how, you know, we as humans, we have to swear on something else. I swear on my mother's grave that this is true, right? Jesus, God, God doesn't have to do that because God is the greatest. So he swears by himself. He goes, listen, by me, it's going to happen. 
It shows us just a microcosm of who God is, of how powerful God is, of how in control God is. If I said, I swear on myself I'm going to do something, you might go, all right, he might do it, but he really doesn't have all that much power or authority or this or that, right? I could say, you know what, I swear, I could say, I swear by God I'm going to do it. That's a huge thing, and you read a lot of times in the Old Testament, people make an oath be with God and then break it, and there's a lot of bad things that happen at that point. But God swears by himself, on himself. And if that doesn't give you hope, I don't know what would. I am power, not me. I'm speaking as God now. Not that I'm God, but, you know, let's role play, I guess. I'm power. I am might. I am in control. Nothing happens without me knowing about it and allowing it. So if I say it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And we look at Abraham, right? Like, like the, the story of Abraham. Abraham, you're going to have a son, and your descendants will be like the stars in the sky. And Abraham said, I believe you. And Sarah went, it's taking too long. I'll do my own thing. Abraham, you need to go do this, right? And, and that whole story, the, the, the Jews have their greatest enemy on earth in the Muslims because of that one moment, that one act. Because God said, trust me, I'm swearing on myself. And Sarah said, that's not good enough for me. It should be. It's got to be. And it shows this difference between us as humans and God. So it continues on there. And, and uh, uh, down in verses 17 and 18, it gets a little confusing, the wordage there. So let me, let me break it down, what it's meaning. God said, listen, I will swear by two unchangeable things. One, my promise to Abraham. I make a promise, and I keep it. Now, you might say, well, he did this or that. Here's the thing, right? If he makes a covenant and says, by me, it's going to happen, it happens. There have been times when he says, listen, for instance, with the people of Israel, if you keep my commandments and you follow after me and you follow no other gods, I will do X, Y, Z. They did not do any of those things throughout their entire history. Therefore, he did not do X, Y, Z. He didn't break the promise. They did. But when he says, I'm making a promise, for instance, he makes a promise, right, that David's line will rule in Jerusalem for eternity. He doesn't say, David, you have to do something. He doesn't say, your descendants have to. No, your line will rule. And Jesus is from the line of David, and he will rule for eternity. It's a promise he made. So that's the first thing. And then the other unchangeable thing is that he makes an oath that rests on the very fact he is God. I'm making an oath on the fact that I am God. That doesn't change. God has always been God. He is God. He will always be God. That's not going to change. Through the, through the various uh, uh, winds of the earth, through the changing of the earth, kings and kingdoms, they have risen and fallen, and God has remained God through every single one. And so he makes this oath on the fact that he is God. And then whoever this author is says, listen, I'm in uh, the second half of verse 18 here. We who have taken refuge, that's you and me, refuge, the people that have, have accepted Christ as the Lord and Savior, that follow after God, we have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. That hope 
is Christ. So number one there was look to the past. Number two, look to the past for the future. Look to the past for the future. God is unchanging. He makes a promise and he keeps it. So why would he break one in the future? This hope we have as an anchor, I'm in verse 19, this, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. Now this veil that is referring to, if you remember when we talked on Easter, we talked about how the veil in the temple was torn, and we talked about what this veil represented, what it, what it kept us apart from, the Holy of Holies. And it says, listen, this veil, this hope allows you to enter in. Because Christ went in before you. Verse 20 there is where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever. Christ sits at the right hand of the Father, God, interceding on your behalf and on my behalf so that I and you, we, can enter into the Holy of Holies. A privilege that throughout history, one person at a time has had, millions now can have at a time. Walk into the Holy of Holies. This hope. So the question is, where are you placing your hope? Again, I want to reiterate that I don't have a problem with scientists and nurses and doctors. I'm not telling you not to trust some science because you know what's real science? True science, it backs up everything that God says. So real science, I have no problems with it. I have no problems with things like vaccines and stuff like that. I'm not telling you not to get the polio shot here. Don't say, well, my pastor said don't do it. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying, though, is where are you putting your hope? Because if you put your hope in a doctor, he or she is going to fail you. Medicine is going to fail you. We've made such advancements in medicine. For 2,000 years, medicine was the same. And then in the past 100 years, it's just skyrocketed. But you know what? It's going to fail you. And anybody who's died knows that. Sorry, that's the way that works. I'm not telling you not to trust, you know, well... Maybe I should tell you not to trust politicians. You know, we won't go there. But um, I'm not telling you not to trust your parents if they're, you know, they're good, godly men and women. I'm not telling you not to trust your, your significant other and stuff like that. I'm not telling you not to have those relationships. What I'm telling you, though, is where is your ultimate hope? Is it in the one who for thousands of years has made promises and kept them? I'll tell you something. A lesson I learned from my dad it's a good lesson, don't worry. A lesson I learned from my dad that I will use with my own kids. My dad made one promise to us that he loved us. That's the only promise he ever made to us. I have three siblings. Everything else, he would say, we will try. He never said, I promise we'll go to McDonald's after we go to Walmart today. He might go, we'll try to. Why? Why did he do that? I never understood it as a kid because I would still say, you promised. And he'd go, no, I didn't. I never promised it. And as an adult, I understand it more now. Because when a promise is broken, a piece of you shatters a little bit. And that trust that you had built up, whether you know it or not, it slips away. So he made a promise on the one thing that he knew he would never break. Everything else he tried to do. I'm going to do the same thing with my kids. Hopefully, I'll do it as well as he did. But let me tell you this. God has made several promises to you individually. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. It's not going to happen. 
He loves you with everything, enough to come to earth and die for you. He's made promises to people like Abraham, and yes, I'm not saying he's going to come down and make a covenant with you about your descendants and stuff like that, but he, you can read throughout Scripture the promises he's made to individual people and that they've come true. When God makes a promise, it holds. And as Christians, we have several promises that we can hold on to. One of them is that there is a better thing coming. It's in heaven, but it's coming. I don't know what's going to happen with coronavirus. Maybe, I doubt it, but maybe this is our version of the Black Plague. And millions will die. And the world will never be the same. I doubt it, but maybe that's the path this thing is going to take. But I tell you, I don't have fear of it. Because I have hope in God. And he tells me there is a better tomorrow. Maybe not a physical tomorrow. Maybe I'll wake up tomorrow morning and the world will be on fire. I don't know. But I do know that I have a hope in heaven that I will go to one day. Whether through my death or through the rapture. I do know that in my darkest moments when I feel alone, I'm not. Because the one I place my hope in has promised me he will never leave me nor forsake me. And he has given me no reason to doubt it. And he never will. Where are you placing your hope during this time? If it's in human and human things, humans and human things, it will fail you. If it's in Christ, that'll never fail. I'm not promising tomorrow's going to be easy. I'm not promising tonight's going to be easy. I'm not promising there aren't harder, darker days ahead. In fact, I'm promising you that there are. Whether it's with coronavirus or whether it's with the, the tribulation or the next virus that comes, I don't know. But I do promise you because the Bible says the world's going to get worse. So I believe it. But where are you placing your hope? Because I have a hope of a future. You know, we talked weeks ago about Jeremiah 29, right? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. And we talk about how that gets taken out of context. Well, I'm putting it in its context, and it tells me that he has a hope in a future for me, and it's in heaven. And I can't wait to get there. We'll last a little longer here, hopefully, and we'll take some people with us when we go, but where are you placing your hope? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you for hope. Yes, one day hope, will, uh, hope will, will not be needed anymore because we'll be staring face to face with our creator and our savior. And I won't need hope anymore because hope will be realized. But I thank you that right now in this moment I can have hope. I can have hope while people are sick. I can have hope while people are out of jobs. I can have hope while bad things are happening. It doesn't make it easy. It doesn't mean that everything's going to go swimmingly. But it means that I can trust in you. Thank you for your promises you have made and kept to remind me of the promises you've made to me that I know you will keep. Father, it's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen and amen.